lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Tony and Sally. Um, uh, Come myself laughing there again. That's a great song. I'm not laughing at the song. Uh, it's me singing out of tune <laughs> again, as usual. Uh, I mean, <laughs> when I was passing the church, I used to switch the mic off when I was <laughs> leading worship. <laughs> It was all right. But I, I actually believe that when I sing in tongues, I sing in tune. I don't know why, but anyway. Anyway, let's all be on tune on this. This morning, I'm uh, going to preach two little parts, and uh, Sally Ann and Tony are going to sing in between. And I'm going to finish this uh, uh, two-week series off next week. And so this is in, uh, it's in four parts, really, isn't it? So here we go, and it's going to be John... 17. It's called the uh, the prayer of the great high priest. It's Jesus at prayer. And I'm just going to read a section of it through and then we'll look at that section in a minute or two. After Jesus had said this, John 17, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. And now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They are yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I'll remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as you are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. And none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture will be fulfilled. That's the passage we're going to begin to look at this week and further on next week. So to set the scene, this is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it's called that because Jesus fulfilled 
or is fulfilling here in this passage of scripture, the high priestly prayer. Now, when the normal high priest would go into the temple and pray, he would pray three things. Number one, for himself. And here we've seen Jesus praying for himself. Number two, he would pray for the priesthood. Here, Jesus is praying for the priesthood, priesthood of all believers. That's you and it's me. And then he will pray, the priest in the temple, for all of God's people. And here later on, Jesus is praying for the generations to come, for all those who come into faith, for all those who will be called children of God, for all those who will be adopted into his family. He's praying for you. He's praying for himself and he's praying for all those to come in chapter 17. So I want to set the scene if I can. And this for the disciples listening in was an entirely new experience and a new situation. They had never seen this before. So this was real time. It really happened. And when we read the scriptures, let's make this real time for ourselves. And in fact, whenever we come to the Bible, it is real time. It is a new situation. We come to the word of God new when we read it. And this is new for us. So let's let's see if we can step into it this morning. Now, what I see here in this passage is the most remarkable, intimate, revealing, passionate, wonderful passage in the whole of the Bible. John Knox, who is a Scottish reformer, Protestant reformer, and a great individual on his deathbed, had this chapter 17 read to him over and over and over again. And John Knox's real ministry, his direction of his ministry was to the church at that particular time, trying to say to the church, be church the way that God wants it to be and instructs us to be in the word of God. And not the tradition that we've overlaid across it and not what men might think are good for the church to do. You must do it in a biblical way. Now, they, the disciples in this passage, and we are witnessing Jesus here. And we're actually seeing his very heart, his soul, his longing, his intention. And in Isaiah 50, it says this, that Jesus set his face, speaking of Jesus, he set his face like a flint. Not to be ashamed or disgraced. So when Jesus went to the cross on Calvary, and this is just before he went to the cross, this, in fact, this prayer is on the last day. He knew that he was going to be crucified with all revelation and truth and everything that that means. He knew by the end of the day he would be crucified. And here he is. And he, the Bible says, set his face 
like a flint, not to be shamed, not to be disgraced. He wasn't going to walk away from it. He was going to fulfill the command of his father God upon his life. Luke 15 and 9 said, when the day drew near, and that's this day, when the day drew near to be taken up to glory, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And all the missioning was over now. Now he knew he had to go to Jerusalem. And now he knew that he was going to suffer the death was the worst torturous kind of death is going to be handed over to the Roman soldiers who were brutal. He knew it was going to happen. And so he got his church together. He got his disciples together and he took them to Jerusalem. And there into Jerusalem, the former passages in the Bible is where he taught them. And he taught them what was going to happen that he was going to be taken from them he taught them that the world that would now hate him jesus would hate them too so expect it he said if the world hates you keep in mind my disciples that it hated me first if you belong to the world it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And that's why the world hate you. Remember what I told you, servant isn't great in his master. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And if they obey my teaching, they will also they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they don't know the one who sent me. If I'd not come and spoken to them, then they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father as well. If I'd not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. And that's what he was walking into. The hate on the cross for Jesus Christ was incredible. The price of Jesus is the price that is laid upon our shoulders as well for living in and declaring the truth. He being the son of God and the disciples as witnesses of him for living in and declaring the truth, the demands of obedience for us as disciples, absolutely great. The turbulent repercussions of living in the truth is very real for every one of us. There is a price for this. I want us to see his character, his resolve, his mental strength, his faith, his confidence, his hope and his trust in these last hours of his life. 1 Timothy says, 
he, Jesus, endured the cross, endured the cross and its shame and its scorning for the joy that was set before him. But don't take away the shame. Don't take away the scorning. Don't take away the brutality and the cost of the cross. But he saw it. He knew it exactly. He knew the detail, but he's going to go right into it. And the joy was he was going to come out the other end. And the joy is that he would die for the sins of men and women and children, you and I. He would become our savior and he would become our redeemer. Was this Jesus a fake? Was this Jesus a phony? Was he a leader? Was he a teacher? Was he a great man? Was he the savior of the world? Now we're going to find out. Our savior steps in this passage. 17. After Jesus had said this, after taught his disciples, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Our Saviour is stepping right now into an intercessory role. He's turned his face away from his disciples. He's turned his face now from all the teaching and all the journeying and all that fellowship and all the love and care of the people around him that he was going to die for. He's turned his face away from the preoccupation of his mission and now he's turned his face towards the Father. He's stepping into his intercessory role. It says this in Hebrews, and this is absolutely brilliant. Now then, it says, there has been many priests and death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives and intercedes for them. And in his ascension to glory, Jesus lives ever, forever, the Bible says, to intercede for you and for me. Can you believe it? That Jesus Christ is interceding for you right now, active then Active now, active forever. It's Jesus interceding by standing in the void. And a priest does that, he stands in the void. One hand stretched out to God. One stretched out to man. And he becomes the breach. He pulls man in to God and pulls God to man. This great intercessor is doing that right now. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. This God-man on the cross, standing between God and man, waiting for us. And the Bible says, whosoever, let me read it out of the Bible for you. The Spirit says, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. And Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to everybody. Come.
come to me. There is no other way. And when we realize that there is no other way, even for us as believers, there is no other way to heaven than through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to know the Savior and to know the Father than through Jesus Christ. We have to know Jesus Christ. And here the disciples are listening and witnessing this. We come through the cross and then we take up our cross and we follow him. So he gathers his disciples, just like us. He explains to them, washes their feet, they eat together, told them of the kingdom, the events that were going to take place. They'd seen all the miracles and the feeding of the 5,000. And he told them of the rejection that I've just read to you. Told them of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Told them the world would hate them. Told them he was going to heaven. They were witnessing salvation. There's a lovely, lovely hymn that you all know. And I survey the wondrous cross. Just before I went on screen this morning, I was just listening to, because uh, I listened to music, I was listening to someone sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I can see the disciples turning their eyes on Jesus as they begin to pray this prayer. And that's the very thing that we've got to do and discover in you. To turn our eyes upon Jesus, not on ourselves, not on the issues, not on the problems, not in the cares of this world that will invade us. We have to turn our eyes on Jesus. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, saving the death of Christ my God. And all the vain things that would charm me most, I sacrifice them to your blood. See from his head, see from his hands, see from his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingling down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine? that were at present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, demands my life, my all. Very soon, he was going to be arrested. He's going to face a trial. He's going to be handed over and crucified. Jesus said in John 16, I'm telling you all this so that in me you might have peace in this time. Truth always brings peace. In this world, he says, you're going to have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And church, and right now, just when I finish this little piece, we're going to sing a song together and Tony and, and Sal are going to sing to us. This is why I need the church. 
This is why we need one another. We are those disciples, Jesus interceding. We need one another. We need the teaching that he gives us together. We need fellowship together. I need in this miserable world that we live in, I need to feel the upbeat spirit of the church of Jesus Christ. I need to be with spirit filled believers. I need to be with victorious. I need to be with a victorious group, a fellowship that can keep me on track. I need to be united with a strong, determined, committed, forward moving, vision living church. And that's what Jesus was going to leave behind as he went to the cross. And that's what there is no place in this world outside of the church. The church of Jesus Christ is everything. And John Knox had it absolutely right. The way we do church and our church together, we do it biblically, not unbiblically, not for our favor, but for God's favor. Sally and Tony, a more fitting song. It was lovely. Father, in these moments, we will turn our gaze upon you and see you as our Jesus who reigns. Be our vision. You know, um, Historically, I always seem to be in the wrong meeting um, <clears throat> at the wrong time. That was going to be healing or something filled with the Spirit or baptizing the Holy Spirit or whatever. If anything was going to break out, I'd be somewhere else. And um, I, I just wanted to be uh, where it happened. And we prayed in our church and prayed and prayed and we taught and taught revival, and it got to such a place where both Sue and I, we, we couldn't miss a Sunday, just in case it would break out <laughs> in the way that things happen historically, and I'm somewhere else. And in a glorious way, one day it broke out while we were together, not by ourselves, but with the whole church to witness and for our gaze. When God breaks out, your gaze turns. And all, I mean, I've been in moments when I truly have and felt guilty a little bit, but thought it doesn't matter feeling guilty, it's all right. The presence of God was so great. I just didn't want to go home to my wife or my children or my church or to real life. I just said, Lord, if there's a good time to take me, it's right now. There's no insecurity or fear for the future. The presence of God was so incredible and so vision-filling. Well, here's Jesus turning his face from his disciples. After Jesus had said all his teaching, he looked heavenward and he prayed. And for a moment, I'm going to talk about looking heavenward before I go on with the rest. His focus and his gaze was away from the world and to him. And if we have never had moments like that, if we've never had deliberate moments like that, 
then, wow, we're the poorer for it. And as a church, that's what we want to do in these days, turning our eyes, our vision on Jesus. To listen to teaching and preaching and worship that takes our gaze away from anything around us and just simply to Jesus. And the whole atmosphere in the Bible changes here. The temperature changes. Now he's absorbed fully in another world. The father's gaze. Do you remember the story of Stephen in Acts? And when the mob took hold of him for speaking what he spoke and preaching about Jesus Christ and his resurrection, his death and resurrection and salvation, they took hold of him. And would you believe it? That Paul, who was Saul then, was there inciting them, the, the, the crowd, and they grabbed him and they were about to stone him. And it must have been an awful, agonizing moment. It was a moment where I would run for cover. I'd run to the undergrowth. I'd do anything to get away from them. But they stoned him. And the Bible says, Stephen, full of what? Hatred, full of regret. Full of fear, full of concern, full of thoughts of what could be, full of how did I get into this? Stephen, full, the Bible says, of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory, the glory of God. At the worst time possible, imaginable to see the glory of God and do you know in your most miserable heartache moments God reigns still and he wants you to see his glory greater than the situation you find yourself in and Jesus is looking heavenward now and in the Jewish tradition I mean when I pray historically I remember going to the prayer meetings when I was a young guy and I used to put my hands on my knees like everybody else bow your head and look down to the floor uh, often to recognize that I got hot socks on or something like that but the one thing I wasn't doing was praying in the Jewish tradition they lift their heads to heaven and pray. We bow our heads. They lift their heads to heaven and pray. What a way to pray. Lifting your eyes and your gaze heavenward. Stephen looked up to heaven. Jesus here. Look heavenward, it says. He's looking heavenward. I was a lovely man when I, in my church in Cheltenham, and he was a super, super guy. And he must have been in his 70s, maybe about my age. And he became ill. And I went to see him in hospital on a number of occasions. And his condition worsened. And his wife wrote me and says, can you go in and see him? This is the, the kindest, most generous, simple guy you can imagine. Lovely, lovely man. And I went and I sat with him as he was dying. And I will never forget this moment as long as I live. 
still laid in bed, almost as if he was unconscious. And I reached my hand out and I held his hand. Together we just held hands. And nothing was said. Nothing was said probably for about 20 minutes when I sat with him. And all of a sudden, lifted his head. And he said, see, I can see you, Pastor. I can see an angel. And as he said it, he loosened his grip. And the angel took him. And that room was filled with the glory glory of God. Jesus lifted his eyes and he saw the glory of God. Stephen saw the glory of God. Psalm 12. The children of Israel were making their way to Jerusalem. And the psalm says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And in Revelation, when John had a vision of risen Jesus, Revelation 1 and 14, when I saw Jesus, his hair was as white as wool and his eyes were blazing like fire and his face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. And when Moses went up onto the mountain, given the task of marking out the 12 commandments, when he came down from the mountain, and the children of Israel saw him, his face, his countenance was shining, his very skin was shining, and they all saw it. And they were afraid of the shining. But when we see the shining and look into the face of Jesus, we're not afraid. We run to it. We run to it. Oh, church, we need the shining revelation, the glory of Jesus again. Terry McComb was a favourite singer of mine. And look up onto the internet, Terry McComb. And he sings a beautiful song. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. And I listen to it and I just worship God when it's on because that's what God has to do to us lift our head and it's based on Psalm 3.3 you O Lord are my shield and my glory the lifter of my head Jesus was lifting his eyes to heaven because what he was going through 
was sheer hell. And in those moments, we need our eyes lifting. We need to know that the shield of God is around us. And I see that, you know, when the fiery darts of the enemy are coming upon us and the stones are being thrown, our natural reaction is to run and to cower and to bow our head and to shield ourselves. But Jesus is saying, you're my shield. You're my defender. You're my glory. Lord, Father, share your glory with me. What do you see in all our dangers? Where is your glory? Is your my glory, is it in our self-importance, in our position, how well we've done in life, in our security that we've built around us? Where is our glory? Is our glory and is our modernity? Is our glory in our position or our accumulation? Where is our glory? In our personality, in our humour? or Where's our glory? Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven. Saw the glory of God. Where do we cast our gaze? Well, in John 17, 1 says he looked towards heaven and he prayed. Very worst moment becomes the finest moment. And Jesus came for those moments to save you, to save us, to die for us, for him to connect again and gaze into the eyes of his father so that we might be his bride, his church, The church is his glory. Paul came to the position and said, I will boast in nothing else. I will boast in nothing else in my life. But in the glory of the cross. Finally. Who do we boast of? Most in our life. What do we boast of most in our life? Do we stand out in these days or do we blend in? Do we position ourselves to proclaim that Jesus is the truth, the life, the way? Do we cry out, show me your glory, O God, show me your glory? Do we have a sense of a God-given call and a command to follow in our life? Do we lift our heads and see Jesus or sing songs? Do you, do I, do we fight this fight of faith with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind for ourselves? And for others, do we fight for the church of Jesus Christ here on earth? Do we fight for the truth that's in it, the message that it proclaims, the fellowship that it should be, the witness that it has? Do we fight? 
for that. Father God, speak to our hearts and our spirits. Truly, all we want to see is Jesus. Through the challenge of the word, we want to see the challenger of the word. See the face of our glorious Jesus. Will you, Father, send to us as a church a breath of revival in these days and stir us up to be the people that you want us to be? Amen. Amen.